Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. Today is the third Sunday in Lent, and we continue in our sermon series exploring the covenants that God makes with his people. Today's lesson from Exodus 19 introduces us to God's covenant with Moses, a covenant that's further articulated in the, the Decalogue, the 10 words, the 10 commandments that we recited together. You can find some sermon notes on the inside of the back of your leaflet, page 11. It's also an exciting Sunday in the life of our church. This week we entered into a contract to purchase this building. There are two parties involved, important parties I would say, an important building and it's legally binding. A contract is similar in some ways to a covenant. You'll see our definition that we've been using for a covenant, that it's a promise between important people about important things with important consequences. We've looked at the covenant between God and Noah, God and Abraham, and now God and Moses. God desires to have personal relationship with us. Perhaps that's something that you have heard uh, in church before. But what does it mean to have a personal relationship with God? Well, at the very beginning, God created humans to be in a special relationship as partners. They would be God's partners to work alongside him, to bring goodness out of the created goodness <clears throat> that God created. Now, when, God, when God's people rebel, God selects a smaller group of people out of the many to be in a special relationship with him. He makes a new partnership, a covenant, a promise, a promise where he asks his partners to do certain things and he promises that their relationship with God and their actions will actually help God renew his purposes and promises to all people. In short, the purpose of a covenant is missionary. It's to take the love and blessing that God desires for his people and to extend it through God's people to all people. Let's take a look at the basic elements of the covenant as we begin, and then we'll consider some practical implications for us as a church. First, who are the important people? God and the people of Israel. God, God who initiates, who calls, who speaks, who writes the Ten Commandments on the tablets. It's God who initiates this relationship. It's God who fulfills this promise. God had told Moses that a sign for him of God's faithfulness was that once he rescued them from Egypt, they would return and worship him on a mountain. You'll see that our passage has Israel encamped before this mountain. God is faithful. His very name declared to Moses, I am, declares his existence. And the name of God for the Israelites was synonymous with action. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them manna and water in the desert. He defeated their enemies, and now he has brought them to this moment. And this covenant is between not just a singular person, not just with Abraham, not just now with Moses, but with the whole people of Israel. And it's the people who are to hear and obey what God says. But first, they're to remember what God has done. Look at verse four in our reading from Exodus 19. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Can you imagine what stories they may have told to remember what God had done? If you actually flip through the Psalms, the, uh, the hymn book for God's people, historically, you see many of these which are recitations of what God has done. One of my favorites is Psalm 136, and it's essentially a retelling of God's rescue of his people from Egypt. And after every line of what God has done, the refrain is, for his mercy endures forever, or some translations, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's try this for a second. It might go a little differently than Psalm 136. I want you to think of what stories we will tell. The stories we'll tell to think about and remember how God has brought us to this place of how he brought us here, a tip from a visitor that was unknown before our lease expired at ACDS. For his steadfast love endures forever. That was your first try. Of how he cared for us in our own wilderness sojourn after an electrical fire. For his steadfast love endures forever. Of how he provided as we waited for him to provide a permanent church home for his steadfast love endures forever. How he has given us this place for much, much less than was on the table from others. For his steadfast love endures forever. In the prayer email that has gone out weekly during our entire church search process, somebody, I'm not sure who, offered this reflection. They said simply, it is too wonderful for words. The story is such a good one to tell who will believe us. I hope that those are the words that are on our lips like they must have been on the hearts of God's people then. That's the important people. What are the important things of the covenant? They are the Ten Commandments. They're given in descending priority, though they are, of course, linked. You'll notice that the first four have to do with our love for God, and then the next six have to do with our love for others. So the first four, in in summary, God's people are to worship the one true God. They're not to have anything more important than God. Imagine their context in Egypt, in the ancient Near East, where idols were a common source for worship. They're to make sure that their talk about God gives him honor and glory that he is due. And they're to set apart a day of no work. It's actually the sign of the covenant that God's Holy people are set apart just like that day is set apart. And they're to do these things to show their love for God above all else. And that's to continue and translate into their love for others, which is what the next six commandments address. They're to honor parents because God-given authority shows honor to God. They're to value human life because human life is made in God's image. They're to value marriage, actually, as a model of covenantal relationship. They're to respect the property of others. They're to value truthful words, since untrue words bring harm. And finally, they're to value integrity, because their inner thoughts, inner thoughts of greed, would lead to outward sin. They're to follow commands, and you'll notice that these commands address their actions and then their words and then even their inner thought life. And when we will see in a moment how Jesus 
renews and reframes the law that becomes important. They're to live these out, to live out God's love for others because these laws, we call them laws, but they are reflections of God's character. They're God's covenant purpose that God would extend his love and blessing to all people through his people. So that's the important things of the covenant. What are the important consequences? Now, covenant was a a binding agreement. It had stipulations, requirements, obligations. And the obligation for the Israelites was actually quite simple. Look at verse 5. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Listen up and do what it says. If they obeyed, and here's the good part. Here's the reward for keeping the covenant. It says in verse 5 that they would be God's treasured possession. They would be his special people. They would have a unique relationship with God. In Deuteronomy, where it sums up the point of obedience to God, the refrain throughout Deuteronomy is that it may go well with you. See, God would care for them as they lived out his communal community values as his people. And whereas Abraham and the promise God made to him was unconditional, the faithfulness of the Israelites to following will affect how much they enjoy God's blessing. See, the obedience is for the people's good, but it's also for God's glory. The Israelites will be God's treasured possession, and then look, continue in verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There'll be a kingdom of priests. There'll be a people who are to mediate God's love, to bring God's love to all people. And God will be glorified. They're to bring the nations to God. And they'll be a holy nation. They'll be set apart, set apart from sin, living in contrast to the world around us. To a covenant. Important people, important things, important consequences. But what about us? We've seen God's covenant with Noah, with Abraham, now with Moses, and it builds a picture of God's love. God desired to bless his people, to make them a nation, to give them a land, to give them a purpose. They were to love God, to love their neighbor for their good and for God's glory. But who is the covenant made with? The Israelites. So what about us? How does this apply to us? Because we are not Israel. Jesus tells us in the New New Testament that we are a part of a new covenant in his blood. And he reframes the law for us. Let's consider three ways in which this will apply to us. The timelessness of God's moral law, the steadfastness of God's saving love, and the purpose of Christ's church. In our Anglican tradition, the ACNA has a catechism called To Be a Christian. A catechism uh, is something which is for the purpose of instruction and preparing young or new followers of Jesus. Historically, Lent was a time where new or young believers were prepared for baptism on Easter. And in uh, this book, which is based on the Apostles' Creed, 
on the Lord's Prayer and on the Ten Commandments, it says this about God's timeless law. It says, Jesus' moral teaching unfolds the law and applies it to the human heart. It is universal, authoritative, or authoritative, and final. We sung in our opening hymn in verse 3 these words, Established is his law, and changeless it shall stand. Deep writ upon the human heart, on sea, on land. So while the covenant was made with Moses and the Israelites and was binding for them, including all of the 600 plus laws that followed, which were an outworking of these basic principles of love for God and love for neighbor, for us, the moral law is what stands. And the moral law, these 10 commandments, stand for us because they are a restatement of God's laws elsewhere in scripture, and they are confirmed by Jesus in the New Testament. Now, I think the moral law, the Ten Commandments get a bad rap, as if these are God's killjoy for humanity. But I want you to take a moment and just imagine a world in which especially Commandments 6 through 10, excuse me, 5 through 10, do not exist or aren't followed. A world of murder, lying, stealing. Pretty quickly, we get a sense that these are for our good. They're for a good and just society. The other reason that God's law is timeless is because it's living. Now, Mimi and I uh, made a will when we had children, and a will is essentially the declarations of the wishes of a person who is dead. But a covenant is different because if the covenant is living, then it is the desires of one who is living. And our God is living, and so his desires are meant to be lived out. So God's moral law is timeless. Secondly, God's saving love is steadfast. It is forever. Did you notice our refrain to the opening acclamation? His mercy endures forever. We remind ourselves of that every Sunday in Lent. Now we know from the covenant with Noah that God is grieved by sin, but that he is also patient and gracious. He has, he has hung his archer's bow in the sky, as if to say, I'm hanging up the weapon of punishment for sin out of grace and love for you. God offers salvation to us in place of judgment. What was the people's response when they heard all of these laws? Perhaps audacious. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And you know what? They failed again and again. The rest of scripture is nearly a litany of their failure to live up to God's desires. But the rest of scripture is also a litany, a testimony of God's faithful saving love for them. That they aren't saved by that law, but they're saved by a God who loves them. In fact, the covenant is based on the fact that God's saving act has already been done. The covenant with Moses is based on the fact that God has already saved them and rescued them from slavery in Egypt. 
And the same is true for us. We are saved by God's accomplished act, Jesus on the cross. And it's Jesus who gives a renewed meaning to the law for us. In our liturgy at other times during the year, we repeat Jesus's summary of the law, which is this from Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus's law of love for God and for neighbor is our purpose. It is our calling as Christians. It is the mission of Christ's church. It's the mission of our church. And so I want us to conclude by thinking about the question, how will we do these two things as a church in this place? How will we show our love for God and our love for neighbor? This is a key. At one point in time, I think in marker, it said 127.1 on this key. Some of you still have them probably on your keychain. These were keys that were to be a, a sign, a way to remind us to pray and to ask a faithful God to provide for us. I'm going to keep this on my keychain. You might want to do the same. A reminder that our work doesn't end when we get the key to the building. The work continues when we come in the building to worship God, and it continues when we go out those doors to show God's love to the world. So how will we show our love to God? Simply put, in worship. And our worship is to be extravagant. You might know the story from the Gospels of a woman who anointed Jesus with a costly jar of ointment. She was condemned by, by onlookers because it seemed wasteful. But Jesus said that that story would be told wherever the gospel was proclaimed for God's glory. The generosity of this congregation has been extravagant. And I pray that our generosity and worship of God moving forward would also be extravagant. I want you to take a moment and look around. Not so much at each other, you're beautiful people, but look around, look up. Look at the wood paneling on the ceilings, these massive beams to hold up a huge expanse of space. I want you to look at the stained glass walls. Stained glass walls, not just windows. There were cheaper ways to build this building. You know how expensive glass is? One of our parishioners is remodeling a house and it's like he just had to choose the windows. It's like that's like half the cost of your house, I think. There are cheaper ways. There are less beautiful ways to build a church. And whoever designed this desired for it to be a place of extravagant worship. Now, I want you to think about our Anglican worship. How does it engage our sight, our sense of touch, our taste at the table, our smell, the sounds of music? Now, I haven't run these particular ideas by David, and I'm sure that he would be delighted to receive every single email with you with every whimsical idea you have for this place, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but think about it. Fresh paint, more light, kneelers for us to pray. The smell of flowers as we enter. A sound system where everyone can hear. A sound system where everyone can hear. How can we use the physical space to worship God, to learn about God, to extend God's love for all people in this place? Now close your eyes, and I want you to picture that you're walking around outside, out in our neighborhood, in your neighborhood for many of you. For those of you who live a little further away, walking around Alexandria, who do you see? What needs what burdens are on their hearts? How can we show our love for our neighbor in this place? How can we use this property, this space, Christ's church, to proclaim God's blessing? Maybe start simply. We walk out the doors. The parking lot's in pretty bad shape. Maybe we can repave it. Maybe we can add some lines in a basketball court. Maybe there's a section of it where kids can ride scooters and learn to ride their bike. If you've ever been to our parking lot during the week, I've seen so many parents in this neighborhood teaching their kid how to ride a bike in our parking lot. There's this little pocket park in Del Rey that has all these ride-on scooters. My kids, it's their favorite park. They just go there for hours, and all of these young families just live there on Saturday. I don't know if that's in the budget. Maybe there's a community garden. Maybe the, the fruit and the produce from that garden is given to those in need. Maybe there are spaces where we can host groups and offer practical services. Maybe it's AA. Maybe it's ESL for refugee families who have come and are trying to find their way here. Maybe it's events. Maybe it's hosting the, the Alexandria City Choir in this space. Maybe it's bringing back the, the art competition for the area high schools. Maybe it's ways that we can greater partner with our local mission partners. I want you to dream. And I'll give you permission to send every email <laughs> to David. This is a time of great joy. It could be a time of great delight as we consider the ways that we can love God and love our neighbor in this place. Let us pray. God, in all that we do here, may we love you as we worship, and may we love our neighbors so that we may know your blessing and make it known to others. Amen.